0: Our first resurrection encounter that we're going to explore together this morning is the one of Mary Magdalene since Jesus revealed himself to her first. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She ran to find Simon Peter and John in her grief and confusion declaring they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Now those two men race literally to the tomb and find it empty and then they go home. But Mary, Mary is back standing at the tomb, again looking for Jesus. We find her deep in her grief crying and confused about where Jesus is. Now, the word here for crying isn't a subtle shedding of tears. It is a um, wailing lament, one of utter heartbreak and loss. And as she sobbed, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she sees Jesus really isn't there, isn't where she thought he would be. Instead, she sees two angels, And they ask her, woman, why are you crying? And in spite of Jesus having predicted his death and resurrection, the only thing her brain could come up with was that someone had taken his body away. And it was up to her to find it. Now before they can answer her, she turns around and through her tears, she sees a man standing with her. Now we know it's Jesus but she doesn't. He asks her, Dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Now, Jesus knows the answers to his questions. His questions reveal how he knows Mary Magdalene. They um, show compassion, and they give space for Mary to name her grief. Notice There is no condemnation for her tears. No attempt to try to fix it. Not even an attempt to cheer her up. No rushing to assure her that everything is going to be okay. With his questions, he simply enters in and is with Mary in her pain. Now, thinking he was the gardener, she said, "'Sir, if you have carried him away,' Tell me where you, you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Jesus shows how he sees her and knows her by revealing himself to her with one word, her name. Mary had turned towards Jesus before, not realizing it was him. But his speaking her name turns her toward him again this time enabling her to recognize him, even through her tears. What joy she must have felt as she realized no one had taken his body, but he was alive just as he had said, and not just alive, Jesus was with her. This scene is an image of the grace and delight of the resurrection. Christ is risen. is risen indeed it's in this moment that mary begins to move through her grief and turns to her teacher with expectancy jesus not only reveals himself to mary he sets her in motion to tell the good news to others what about you have you ever gone looking for jesus where you thought he would be only to be unable to find him? What is your natural response? To go get help? To try to fix it yourself? To weep and to wail? To keep seeking Jesus? Have you ever realized he was right there with you, but you just hadn't recognized him yet? What if our tears cloud our vision and limit our ability to see clearly what's around us, but can be the perfect lens to see God? What if our tears can reveal God's tender presence? I think what stands out to me in Mary Magdalene's resurrection encounter most is the way that Jesus sees her and isn't uncomfortable with her grief. He meets her right where she is with compassion and invitation. Jesus knows her and personally reveals himself to her by saying her name. And he calls her to tell the good news, to tell what she has experienced with him. It's what he does for each of us. He sees you. He meets you where you are with compassion and invitation. He knows you and your name. And he invites you into your own personal encounter with him. And he calls you to share your God story with others. He sees you. He meets you. He knows you. And he calls you. May God continue to give us the grace to see him and to turn towards him, even in our tears or through our dry eyes, and help us to tell others about him. So Luke 24
1: shares a story about two followers of Jesus who were on their way to a town called Emmaus, which was about seven or eight miles away from Jerusalem. Um, they were probably on their way to their hometown, maybe a significant other's town. But whatever it is, there was, there was reason for them going there. And along the way, they were talking about all that they had experienced in following Jesus. Um, they had been following Jesus, but Jesus was gone now. And so there was a lot to talk about. And on the way, as they, they talked about this experience, I'm guessing they were a little bit disgruntled about what had happened. And if you think about it from their perspective... These are followers of Jesus, which means they dropped everything for him. Maybe they sold half of their goods. They left their homes. They were in. They followed him like the other followers who went to Jerusalem to celebrate what they thought was going to be this awesome moment, right? Where Jesus is entering into what had been promised all this time. He's going to walk into Jerusalem. He's going to claim his throne, and all would be revealed. They were ready for it. But instead, he was arrested, brutally beaten, and crucified. I'm guessing in these moments afterwards, perhaps they began to question their excitement and think maybe this Jesus wasn't who we thought he was. And then, uh, after a few days, they hear more news. They hear all of a sudden that some people had visited the tomb and there was no nothing there. So now they're just confused. And so I'm guessing on their walk back, they're just like, you know what, I'm I'm done. I'm out. I don't know what's going on anymore. I'm just going to go ahead and go back home. And so they're walking home. Along the way, they're talking about all that had happened. And so in verse 15 and 16, it says, As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. They were having an encounter with the risen Jesus, they could see him, but they also couldn't see him. You see what's happening here? In the same way that they couldn't recognize uh, that it was Jesus walking with them, they also couldn't recognize that the Jesus that they thought was supposed to do all these things, it was actually Jesus. He really was the Messiah. but All of their understanding was off. And so there's this stranger walking with them. Stranger was actually Jesus. And, and the stranger asked them, in verse 17, he says, what are, what are you discussing as you walk along? And they reply, Aren't, are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about what's happened? And Jesus is like, what things? And I think that's hilarious, because of course he knows what happened. He was there. It happened to him. But uh, listen to their reply, what, he, what they say. They said, speaking of Jesus of Nazareth, in verse 19, he says, he was a prophet, he was powerful in word and deed, for God and all the people, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and crucified him. And it says, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Past tense, we had hoped. They were disappointed because their hope of who Jesus was and what Jesus would do, it didn't, didn't come through, at least not in the way that they understood what was supposed to happen. Again, they were having an encounter with Jesus himself, but they were blind to see the truth of who he was and what he was there to do. But Here's the thing. Jesus kept walking with them. He, he, as, as they're walking, he's saying that, that you, you, uh, you, you, didn't, you, maybe you didn't get it, but I'm going to explain this to you. He could have dropped them. He could have just said, you know what, you don't get it. I'm going to go talk to some of the other disciples that have a little more faith than you do. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to walk with you. In verse 27, most critical part of this encounter, in my opinion, he says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what all the scriptures about him meant. So for the rest of the walk, that's what he's doing. He's spelling it out for them on this road to Emmaus. And it wasn't until after the journey was over that they came to see him for who he was. I just love this encounter with Jesus because it's so similar to my own experience. Early in my life, as I learned about who this Jesus was, I, I sang the songs that, you know, Jesus loves me and all the other little children of the world. And uh, I went to vacation Bible school and I got to see all the little flanagraph stories, if you remember those. I, I learned the, the stories the problem is, is as I was growing up, all of those things didn't seem to fit with the real world that I encountered. As I started to see the brokenness of real life, I couldn't reconcile what I had hoped all the stories meant with what I'd saw in my real life. But you see, I had a few people that walked alongside me. People that wrestled with this hope that I had versus what was true. These were mentors, pastors, teachers in college, friends, colleagues. For for me, these people helped me to encounter the truth of who Jesus was, the depth of his love, and what his death and resurrection stood for. They didn't give up on me, on my walk. I needed this kind of encounter, this kind of encounter of Jesus walking alongside me, even though I didn't always get it, not giving up on me. Being patient, revealing what is true along the way. These people in my life were like this stranger for me, like Jesus explaining it bit by bit. And so my question for you this morning is: Who's walking with you? Who is helping you to understand what it all means? Is it possible that Jesus has already been there, and you just haven't seen him? I mean, guess very at the very least is that. Jesus is ready to have that encounter with you. Perhaps all it takes is just opening our eyes and seeing him for who he really is. That's my hope for you.
2: John 20, verse 19. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. The disciples had heard all that Mary had said, but hearing and seeing, hearing and seeing and believing turned out to be very different things. This passage starts after Mary has revealed the good news to the disciples. She said, I have seen the Lord. Yet on that same night, they're locked in a room together, unsure. Of what to believe. After all, the stories that Jesus had risen could just be stories. Could what Mary was telling them be true? In this passage, we see that the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. I can only imagine how afraid the disciples must have been. They were close followers of Jesus, and they had just seen their leader brutally beaten to death, died on a cross. The disciples must have been hiding from those who cried out for Jesus to be crucified. They were hiding from the soldiers and the government who had carried out that execution. They were hiding from their own religious leaders who had turned Jesus in. The disciples sat in a room together behind locked doors because they were fearful for their lives. I haven't known the fear of having another group of people bring a threat against my life. That is a very real fear for people, even in our world today. And maybe some of you know that fear. I identify with the fear that the disciples are in a situation where they don't know what's happening, but they're not sure if their own lives are safe. Some of my most fearful moments are when I feel out of control, that my life isn't safe, or that the life of my kids isn't safe. We all fear for our safety in one context or another. When do you feel afraid? So I'm going to ask our kids a question. And you can answer either by nodding your head or shaking your head. Is there anything you're afraid of? See nods, huh? Now kids, look around at the adults because I'm going to ask them a question. Adults, you can nod or shake your head. Is there anything you're afraid of? Do you see all those heads nodding? We all have fears. What brings you comfort when you're afraid? Kids, you have some paper. If you want, you can take a moment and draw out the thing that gives you comfort when you are afraid. Sometimes we feel better with a hug or a stuffed animal if we're a little bit younger or older. Sometimes we feel better when we think through and we play out how the scenario might go. Sometimes we feel better when we take deep breaths or when we write out our thoughts in a journal. Sometimes we feel better when we talk to someone and we seek out more help because we need it. For you, it may be something else. We all have ways that we seek to feel less afraid. We all have ways that we seek to feel peace. For the disciples, peace comes through an encounter. In John 20, verses 20 and 22, we continue reading. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you. Jesus says it twice in this passage, peace be with you. What does this mean? Jesus was not limited by locked doors. Jesus was not limited by the threat of the Jewish leaders. Jesus was not limited by death. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Jesus was not limited by death. The peace that Jesus brings in the midst of all this, it's a peace that reaches all the way back to the prophet's who proclaim the blessings of the kingdom of God. The peace is fulfilled as the Son of God is lifted up on a cross and died so that all of us could be saved. This is a peace of a life with Jesus that begins here and now. And in John 14, Jesus tells us this is not the kind of peace that the world gives. This is peace from him. This is a peace that comes from knowing that the God who first breathed life into humans now breathes his spirit into us and never, ever leaves us. This is peace, friends. If Jesus has power over the fear of death that kept the disciples locked in a room, then Jesus has power over all of our fears. Christ, standing in the midst of us with scars, bringing us peace, Christ has power over all our fears. Where do you need the life-giving, peace-filled breath of the Spirit? May our greatest comfort come from knowing that Jesus breathes peace over us.
3: So far this morning, we have seen several resurrection encounters with Jesus. Jesus. Jesus met Mary in her deep grief over his death. He gave her the time she needed and he drew her out before finally speaking her name and revealing himself to her. She saw and she believed. Then Jesus met with two disciples on the road in their disappointment, their great disappointment that things had not turned out the way they had hoped, the way they had planned. And after Jesus had taught them from Scripture about God's true purposes, he broke bread. And he revealed himself to them, and they saw, and they believed. And then after that, Jesus appeared to the disciples, huddled together behind locked doors out of fear of those who put Jesus to death. And after he showed them his hands and his side, they saw and believed. But one of the disciples was not in the room where it happened. Immediately after Jesus appeared to his disciples behind locked doors, we read this in verses 24 and 25 of John chapter 20. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Thomas we're told, was also called Didymus. Both names mean the twin. And in fact, from what I can find, Thomas was not even a name before this account. Thomas is simply the Greek transliteration of the Aramaic phrase Teoma, which means the twin. Now, our Bibles turn it into a name. Our Bibles give him the name Thomas, but when verse 24 is translated literally, it just says, now the twin, also known as the twin. Poor guy, huh? Why, why give him a nickname and leave out his real name? One theory is that Thomas's real name was Judas, and there is some ancient evidence to back this up. If so there were two other disciples named Judas and possibly three. so Jesus likely gave them nicknames just to tell them apart. In the twelve years that Peyton Manning. Quarterback for the Colts, 24,963 boys, including my great nephew, and 27,466 girls were given the name Peyton. Spelled the way he spells it. That's a lot of little Peyton's running around. Imagine elementary school teachers trying to keep track of all of them. Well, likewise, Judas was a very popular name in Jesus' time because it was the name of a famous Jewish revolutionary. Less than 200 years before Jesus, his name was Judas Maccabeus. He was the ancient equivalent of a star quarterback. So in Jesus' day, there were a lot of little Judases running around. So maybe Jesus gave this Judas a nickname to avoid confusion. He knew he had a twin, so Jesus called him the twin. In Aramaic, Te'oma, the twin. And then Teama, via Greek and Latin, became Thomas, and then it stuck, and then Thomas became a name. Thomas says he's not going to believe their story unless he can see and touch Jesus' wounds for himself. And then we read this in verses 26 and 27. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Now if we compare Jesus' appearance to Thomas with his appearance to his disciples, there are a few similarities. Both times, everyone's behind locked doors. Both times, Jesus appears and says, peace be with you, and both times he shows them his hands and his side. Jesus' appearance to Thomas is basically a reboot of his appearance to his disciples. A do-over. It's sort of like Top Gun Maverick. It was a huge hit in part because it was very similar to the original. It was basically a reboot of the first film, cleverly or perhaps not so cleverly disguised as a sequel. But it worked. It hit all the emotional notes that fans needed. Jesus' appearance to Thomas is also a reboot, cleverly disguised as a sequel. Jesus hits all the notes that Thomas needs him to hit in order to believe, the ones he had already given to the rest of the disciples. In fact, it's unfair to refer to Thomas as doubting Thomas. All the disciples struggled to believe, all of them. When the disciples see the risen Jesus in Matthew 28, 17, Matthew says they worshipped him, but some doubted. When Mary Magdalene tells the disciples she has seen the Lord, Mark sixteen eleven says they did not believe it. Three verses later, those two disciples we heard about earlier on the road went to the disciples, reported uh, their resurrection encounter to the larger group, and Mark says they didn't believe them either. Thomas is no different than anybody else. They were all skeptics. It isn't wrong to be skeptical about such things. In fact, it's the perfectly human response. And Jesus respects it. Jesus respects Thomas's skepticism. So Jesus gives Thomas the exact evidence he was asking for. And then we read Thomas's response in verse 28. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. I cannot help but see Thomas falling to his knees here at this very moment and in that moment Thomas realizes that two things he realizes that Jesus has in fact risen from the dead and he realizes that Jesus is God in the flesh my Lord and my God Jesus has risen from the dead and Jesus is in fact God in the flesh Thomas saw and believed and from that point on everything changed Tradition tells us that Thomas became a missionary and founded churches in India, some of which are still in existence. So apparently skepticism can lead to a very deep faith. As Blaise Pascal, a 17th century philosopher and physicist, put it, quote, the skeptic who comes over the line becomes the most passionate evangelist. You know, maybe John didn't give Thomas a name, a real name, so we could put ourselves... In the passage, a sort of insert your name here so that we who have not seen Jesus risen in the flesh could see him, could encounter him through Thomas's eyes. That that he might become for us all a sort of patron saint. Thomas shows us that if we struggle to believe and if we demonstrate a little curiosity about Jesus, Jesus will meet us where we are. In fact, we've heard that over and over this morning. Once Thomas believes, Jesus says to him in verse 29, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Those words are not just for Thomas, they're for us. And every single person, I don't know if you've realized this or not, but every single person in the Gospels who comes to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead only did so after they had seen the Lord. They all needed to see him. And one day we will see the Lord too. One day. Later on in our New Testament, the same writer for the Gospel of John, John writes in 1 John 3, verse 2, that Christ will appear and we shall see him as he is. But Jesus doesn't want us to wait until that day to come to know him. So he gives us, all of us, a special blessing. A a blessing especially made for those of us who have not seen him. And yet, somehow, have found our way to believe anyway. So that's, what, that's what God wants for all of us. We would, that we would find a way to believe and to come to know him anyway. Here at ECC, we are all about helping people come to know Jesus and then become more and more like Jesus. We'd love for you to join us in our own resurrection encounters, our own daily, weekly resurrection encounters as we or on that journey to become more and more like Jesus. Now, if you are here and you believe already, but you've not made worshiping with other believers a priority, we invite you to join with us next Sunday. Try us out for a few weeks or for a few months. Or maybe you're lost in grief and disappointment or fear. Maybe, maybe your next step is to entrust yourself to a community of faith where Jesus can meet with you. This community or another one. And if you've never believed... Or if you're still still skeptical, we invite you to continue to investigate answers to your questions along with us. Skeptics are welcome here. After all, a skeptic is just someone in search of the truth, and that pleases Jesus very much. Christ is risen! Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for each of these brothers and sisters whose story is recorded for us in scripture. We thank you, Lord, that we can see ourselves in them. We thank you, Lord, that you appeared to them, that you gave them what they needed in order for them to believe. And Lord, I pray now for all of us who have had to believe without that gift. Lord, may we be aware of the blessing you have given us in Christ Jesus. May we live into that blessing fully. And may we, Lord... Open our eyes, our hearts, and our lives that, we, that you might appear to us every day in different ways. Help us, Lord, who have come to know the resurrection of Jesus and come to embrace your call upon our lives that we would follow him. Help us to live the kind of lives that would draw attention to you. And I pray for any, Lord God, who might be in this room or in the sound of my voice online who do not yet know you. Lord, would you give them the grace to take one step out of their lostness out of their grief, out of their disappointment, out of their fear, even out of their skepticism, that they might come to know you a little better. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.